This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Taping Chen, author of the novel Land of Big Numbers. This wonderful combination of, of idealism and pragmatism that I do think you find really often in Chinese society and was a part of the country that I loved so much. We'll be back with Taping Chen in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven and a half years, I've produced more than 320 episodes of First Draft. Last year, I produced one a week, and already I have interviews scheduled for every week so far through June. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved time and effort, and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. We're going through monumental changes as a society, and as I discussed with the writer Claire Massoud in an interview late last year, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and I believe that what we create The writers and I and you, the listener, matters. There's an alchemy that happens with every single interview and every single production. So please, if you value this program, consider becoming a contributing member by donating at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount. But starting with $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes, cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. I believe these conversations about art and craft make life better. I hope you find inspiration and enlightenment of some kind in this and every episode. So whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 320 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft. I work hard to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics, which dependably add up to conversations that focus on what it means to be alive today. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview, Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, edit the show, and do more research. Because at the end of the shows, I recommend other shows I've done in the past that are similar. All of this takes more time than you can probably imagine. It takes equipment, organization, a lot of late nights, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. 
I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. In fact, tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. My guest today is Taping Chen, journalist and fiction writer. She is the author of the short story collection, Land of Big Numbers. Chen's work has been published in The New Yorker, Granta, and Tin House. She is a Wall Street Journal correspondent in Philadelphia, but was previously based in Beijing and Hong Kong. Land of Big Numbers includes very realistic stories about life in China today, mixed with stories that contain magical realism and surreal ideas. Many of the characters are striving for upward mobility, love, connection, belonging, and wealth. Her stories feature twins heading on different paths, an American woman who realizes she doesn't really know her Chinese husband, and a group of commuters stuck for months on a subway platform. We began the interview with Taping Chen talking about some of the themes occupying her mind while she was writing the story collection, Land of Big Numbers. Stepping back, when I think about the collection, it's you know seeing how people really try and strive for meaning, even and a sense of identity, even in incredibly straightened circumstances. The questions of of what it means to live in a society that can be so unjust um, and so cruel. Th- those were absolutely some of the questions that my mind a lot as a journalist in China and just as a human being. And I th- I think those are the ones that come through in the book. Yeah, I was struck by many of your characters' desire to either get ahead. I mean, in some cases, that was like complete wealth. In others, Mm -hmm. it was just recognition. For some, it was just to have like one notch better of a better life. It wasn't Mm -hmm. like they weren't asking for the moon. In some cases, it was love and approval and At the same time, underneath in many of these stories, I think a few of these stories have suicide in them. So there's Mm. also maybe this feeling of helplessness or powerlessness. Mm -hmm. And then overall, I think this idea of being a little bit of a cog in a machine that you have no control over. Several Mm -hmm. of the stories had characters who either they themselves or their neighbors or friends or relatives were in situations where takings were going on. For instance, mm-hmm. like if, if the government wanted or needed the land, they mm-hmm. took it. And so that, mm-hmm. that their, their sense of destiny is not up to them in the least. And so those were some of the things I saw going on in the stories in various ways. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think I think some of those questions are, are really particular to China, and some of them are are more universal, of course. And I think that's been something that's um, interesting about hearing readers engage with the book, is especially in this you know moment and events of the past year. Just thinking that, just being struck by how many of these sets of um, sense of ambiguities and, and conflict and questions are also really present. 
in um, U.S. life these days, too. Someone was asking me that the last story in the book, um, Gubeko Spirit, which is um, about you know, a group of Beijing commuters who get stuck on a subway platform and denied official permission to leave and end up staying there for months and actually forming like this cozy community and never wanting to leave. He was asking, did you write that during lockdown and quarantine? Because, yeah, the resonance is... Um, yeah, it's 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 been that's been something that's really been really wonderful about finally having people read the book is just seeing different things in it and, and finding some of the commonalities in these questions. Yeah, well since you mentioned that story, let's let's start with that. So um Kubeko, is that how you pronounce mm-hmm. it? Kubeko. Mm-hmm. Kubeko spirit is, you know, these people they go down into the train, they're building a new new train system in this region of China and it seems that it's not quite ready. So they go down and the train can't run yet, but they are not allowed out. I mean, they could easily get out. All they have to do is open the gate and they go back up above ground and go on and live their lives. But there was this sense that, no, this train is coming. It's going to be great. And it doesn't matter what you have left behind. Like the main character, her father was ill and she couldn't get home to take care of him. And a few hours, as you said, turn into months. And so they created this society down there. They, they had mm-hmm. rules. They became heroes of a, of a kind. The, the reporters would come down and report on them. People donated games and beds. And it became to the people there this really comfortable living. They didn't have to work. Mm-hmm. They didn't have to make money. But underneath that also, even though some people were rebellious, eventually they were all basically saying, and I think you had a line in there, I trust the authorities. So it made me think a lot about these people that although there were some who tried to fight back, that you had a society of of rule followers in there to the point Mm -hmm. where they would give up their whole lives. Can you talk more about that story? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that story, so many of the stories in this book just emerged out of me looking around (laughs) sort of just in the course of my day in China um, as a reporter, just sort of seeing scenes and wondering, like, what if, and, and trying to tweak them a little bit and play a little with possibilities in the surreal. And to me, that story, um, the one that closes the book, is it, in some ways it's like sort of a dark fairy tale. It's like, uh, it's, I think it's very much about just these, like, what is, what is it like? In some ways, I was trying to capture what is it like to become comfortable with having your freedoms taken from you and how seductive of an experience in some ways that can be to let other, you know, the government or other arbiters of authority um, set the terms, you know, create a script um, to be made helpless. And how, like on one level, I think it's a story about this, like it's the triumph of community, right? And how everybody rallies together and these people who are stuck underground for months end up finding their own sources of private joy and relationships and um you know, thinking of themselves as really tenacious and um, getting through it. And of course, at the same time, being feted by state media and starting to see themselves also as these heroes. Um, I think there's all of that. And you can sort of see it as a story that's in some ways about the resilience of the human spirit. (laughs) But I think also speaks to something much more uh, troubling, too, which is just, again, that just how easy it is for us to become acclimated and comfortable with situations that are objectively terrible and um, can easily normalize things that 
again, when you step back and, and see what's really happening, um, is terrible. And um, in the case of these people who um, have been forced by the government to stay in this one place, um, really a very sad thing. But by the end of the story, um, only one of them actually still sees that. So when you do sit down to write this, because your your background is so much in journalism and interviewing people and seeing the links between the interviews and the situations to create a story of journalism, how did you, once you had this idea, once you got from the what if to saying, okay, this has enough traction for me to write it, then what, what was your process like? such a different process from journalism and that's partly why I loved getting to write fiction so much was for me journalism like you know you, you go in and it's such you go into the bureau and it's a really disciplined affair you're under you, you, you're, you're really conscious right every line you're trying to convey something to an audience that really you assume knows nothing about the context and you know it's going to get edited a million times over it's just it's just like a feeling very much of being under the spotlight whereas for me so I would just start my days writing fiction um sometimes when I was sort of half awake still and um and it just felt so much more like getting to navigate uncharted territory and for me like very deliberately was I was trying to write without knowing where I was going which was such a wonderful feeling and writing with the sense of you know it might start with just sort of a character's voice or an image something just a straight something that that um, trigger, might trigger a story. Like one of the stories, for example, um, Field Notes on a Marriage, was I was riding in a car towards the airport and um, I passed the sign. It was like a, it was a sign that had some sort of like really mangled English on it involving like an adventure park or something. And it was, it, it was so mangled that it read almost like poetry. And I remember just thinking what it would be like to be a woman not from... China to be reading that sign and, and processing it. And that's, of course, the sort of thing that you run into so so often in China. And um, I, I really um, just kept trying to think about who this woman might be. And that character evolved into the story of a woman who's who comes to China after the suicide of her lover and in the end finds no answers. But And actually, in the end, I, I ended up cutting all of that about the sign and, and the things like that that she encounters because it wasn't really about the sign of course but that was the sort of um just impulse that sent me into the story looking for a character um, and I found a lot of a lot of stories like that um, a lot of stories in the book really did evolve in that way um Gubeko Spirit is one of them I, I remember very vividly like coming home on the subway from a press conference, one of those really dead-end rote affairs that many Beijing correspondents are really used to um, that are held by the government and just looking around the subway and thinking, which is a thought I think I've had often in situations just because I have a slightly, I think at times, like a bit of an apocalyptic mind and just thinking what would happen if we got stuck and couldn't get out for, for months, for a long time, what would happen? Um, yeah, and, and I think a lot of stories evolved in that way. So this this story, the other one that you were mentioning, the field notes on a marriage, is mm-hmm. one of the few that takes place in both America and China, mm-hmm. and it is about this woman, a white woman, who 
ends up marrying a Chinese man who she doesn't know very long. It's it's not an arranged marriage at all, but they like go out a few times and he's like, let's get married. Like it doesn't really take much more or less to know if it's going to work. It just, you just mm-hmm. kind of have to try. But once they got married, he was much more distant and mm-hmm. she had always wanted to go visit where he was from in China. He didn't talk about it much. And then he died and she went to China to see where he was from. And as you said, she was trying to find answers and she did find some. She met with the parents and found answers. There was, when he was in school, there was a young Mm -hmm. boy that she knew that they were bullying and it was because this boy was smarter than everyone else and there were limited opportunities to get ahead to go to other schools and this this kid had had it and basically her husband and his friends caused his death mm-hmm. and it really spoke to the competitive nature of schooling in China mm-hmm. and then at the same time as she went back to this village she saw more of that development going on where people were losing mm-hmm. their homes but in the end I think it was this quest to maybe find resolution where none yeah exists mm-hmm. exactly yeah yeah I think it's both the quest for answers as well as for resolution and I think the story is about a lot of things but one of the things that's fundamentally about is just our inability to, to really know people and also just the limits of sort of easy, tidy endings. And I don't know if she walked away understanding herself better either, because mm-hmm. I mean, she did go into this marriage with this man that she didn't know very much. And she accepted mm-hmm. a lot that most people wouldn't accept like his coldness. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. She just really ex- accepted that. And, mm-hmm. um, I think she went and left not just not understanding any more about him, but not really understanding any more about herself. I think she was chastened. I do think that. I think, you know, she's an anthropologist. And so she prides herself in so many ways on on being able to get a handle on people and places. And I think her encounter with her husband, of course, but um, more broadly with his homeland, I think, and his family, um, that really intimate exchange they end up having over the, the dinner table. I think, I think she certainly in that moment is knocked down and chastened by that sense of just the limits of her own professional knowledge, you know, and skill that she, she prides herself on, whether that lasts in a more lingering way beyond the end of her trip. Um, I really, I, I don't know, but it's a good question. I, and I'm, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear, yeah, your interpretation that she ha- she wasn't fundamentally actually changed. Um, or, yeah, that her sense of herself wasn't so deeply altered by that by that trip. Um, and I, I think for me, I, I do feel like it was in that moment, but whether, yeah, whether it lasts longer, I think, I think that's more of a question. Well, I think, too, that you can come to understand why people do what they do, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you know them any better. Yes. Because people are, they're sort of a collection of their bad and good decisions. And sometimes Mm -hmm. these decisions don't make any sense. Yeah. And that was partly why I loved the character Gal so much is just because, you know, the, um, the main character, she, she comes from a very sort of confessional university environment where people like to unpack and unpick and 
come up with their narratives and make much of their decisions and sense of self. And just this idea that a woman like her would end up marrying someone who had much more a sense of his own self and his own um, self-containment, rather, and privacy that endures up to and through his own death. I just thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. And opposed to her for someone who's like really searching for answers, but maybe mm-hmm. isn't out there making stuff happen is mm-hmm. your first story called Lulu. Mm-hmm. And that is told from the point of view of a brother of two twins in China. And Lulu was very smart. She was kind of had more of the hope of the, of the family. They were born at a time where Chinese families are allowed one child, but then they had twins. So they had this, this hope. And then this normal child who the brother, he was not ambitious or favored, but he actually ended up with a good job and, and making it. He, he loved video games and the sister kind of made fun of him, but it, in China, you can compete in video games and travel. And he actually kind of did make it in in that realm mm-hmm. of, of video game competition. And he got married. And at the same time, she was so smart and held all the hope and went away to the, to the city for university. But she ended up being more of a dissenter. She had blogs where she would speak out from the government. She got arrested several times and she was smart enough to know that your option of keeping quiet is probably much better for your life. And, and everyone told her that, Mm -hmm. but she was so smart. She just couldn't do it. So Mm -hmm. you sort of open the book with this idea of how much people need to dissent in, um, in a political situation like China Mm -hmm. and the risks that are involved. Well, that story came, was born I mean, out of so much, but but one of the things that I had very much in mind when writing it was just in my um, experience reporting in China, you would meet these people, whether um, they were sort of um, petitioners, protesters, or lawyers, human rights lawyers, who were putting themselves in such harm's way. I mean, just making these incredibly extreme personal sacrifices with full knowledge of the consequences that they were having to bear, and not just them, but also their families. And the incredible heroism of those sorts of acts, but also what fascinated me was um, the perspective of family members and how it would feel to see someone you love sort of um, just driving themselves off a cliff like that. And the heartbreak mingled with that sense of admiration um, and also frustration. You know, the brother feels this enormous sense of frustration with the sister. Why are you being so stupid like this? She who had been so smart in so many ways, who yet seems fundamentally (laughs) ill-equipped Um, lacks this evolutionary instinct in Chinese society to just keep her head down. And so, I mean, that story for me is so much about characters like Lulu, the sister who does speak out, but also um, I was just so, so captured too by the experience of sort of the ordinary um, bystanders in society or family members who, who see these sorts of tremendous acts and are impacted by them and feel such a mixture of emotions, right? Like the same way the brother does, and I think probably the same way the reader does to some extent, seeing someone like Lulu who has this incredible heroism and yet at the same time, he knows her as a very human person, his sister, someone who he grew up you know, playing with in their apartment. Um, he knows her shortcomings and her, her very human nature. And as I think other members of the family too also 
are deeply aware, they know the limitations of her actions too. I mean, she ends up imprisoned and it's unclear what ultimately what she's done affects. And so, yeah, I think the story is, is a lot an expiration of, of those sorts of dynamics. And to me too, I think it speaks to something broader in Chinese society that I was trying to capture. I mean, so often when talking with um, people here about China, I think people often think of China as sort of a 1984, a really bleak, closed, repressive society. And I think the lived experience is so different. I think um, just on a sensory sort of textural level, it's so much closer to like um, Brave New World than 1984. There's such a plethora of ways that you can be entertained and distracted and and look away. And I think the brother is, is an embodiment of that, right? He ends up becoming very successful in the society because he taps into that vein and becomes that professional video gamer, which, um, you know, brings all kinds of success. And also for, for him, the chance to, to travel abroad, which was something that his sister had craved. And, and of course, that's how the, the story ends with him leaving and, and getting to travel abroad while his sister remains behind um, and, and serving um, a sentence for what she's done. I mean, how do most people in China square the dissidents, like, in their minds? Because so many people know what's going on and so few are brave enough to say it. And then they see what happens with it. But you also probably have, you know, millions of people who are holding so much in. Did you see yeah. that? I think this, it all, of course depends on where you sit. And um, it's such a m- multiplicity of experiences, right? Um, so hard hard to sum it up in, in any one way. But I, I mean, I will say, like, I think the experience that many people, many visitors to China have, and the experience, too, of many people who live in the country as well, is that you can, you can live cheek by jowl and right up against a lot of these things that are happening, but truly not be that aware I think, I mean, of course, it's a very censored and controlled media environment, and that's a huge part of it. Um, it's also a place where perceptions of what's happening in society are so hugely shaped by party propaganda that I think the kinds of people like Lulu who do stumble into almost, you know, I think her brother thinks of it as, you know, when he starts to see what she's sharing and the kinds of um, protests and um, instances that she's writing about, you know, to him, it almost it's like a country he doesn't recognize because for so, I think it is quite possible to live in Chinese society as it is in any society, including American society, to, to live right up against some of these injustices and tremendously ugly things that are happening or that the government does and just have no awareness juxtapose, you know, what you're talking about there is another story called The Flying Machine, where you have an, yeah. an elder gentleman named, is it Cacao? Cacao. Cacao. Yeah, it's true. Cacao. Cacao. He's a dreamer. He He's a, a yeah. like a junk man. He collects junk and he always wants to make things, flying machines, but he'll try to create everything um, he can. And one of the reasons that he wants to make this flying machine is because he wants so bad to be a communist. He wants so badly to be in that party, to have recognition in a small rural town. He wants status and he keeps doing these things to draw attention to himself. And so 
it's kind of funny because on one hand we're talking about Lulu who if she was just a communist everything would be great and Mm -hmm. it falling in line would be so easy but all he wants to do is sort of fall in line and be recognized for that and he can't be yeah it's funny that story yeah I I I have so much love for for Tata as a character I and to me I think he really speaks to something else I wanted to highlight in the book which is that I mean of course you know there's politics in the book and there's that layer of darkness I think too though and I hope this comes through is that I think there's a lot of just I wanted the book to also be a celebration of people like Tata who are sort of the makers out there um you know the people who have that sense of creativity and ambition and drive and sometimes in ways that you know seem so fiercely impractical but also in some ways are just really grounded you know and practical too in their own kind of funny way like he just he wants to ride an airplane he wants to build an airplane um and there's almost like this pragmatism there um this wonderful combination of of idealism and pragmatism that i do think you find really often in chinese society and was a part of the country that i loved so much just the sense that things that you could make things possible um in a way that you know someone someone else might say this is ridiculous you're you know, you're an old farmer in the countryside. You can't build an airplane, but um, but he does try. And and actually, you know, you mentioned the question of how journalism um, sort of affected the writing and, and the interplay between the two. That was one story that was very much actually sort of taken straight from the headlines. Um, when living in China, that was um, almost was like a trope of you know, of, of course, as a journalist, there you spend a lot of time reading um, local and state media, and um, I would see these headlines of farmers who would um, be building impossible things. Um, airplanes um, were one that figured repeatedly for whatever reason, as well as things like transformers or or other sorts of inventions. And I just loved, I just loved reading, you know, those, those little short, they were always short. They were just like these little snippet sort of dispatches um, that never ma- gave you much of a sense of who these people were. And it really just captured my imagination. It's not the sort of thing that, you know, ever could have become like an in-depth proper newspaper story for the Wall Street Journal. But um, it's it's just, I loved it so much. And I, I just wanted to try and, and follow a character like that and, and see more, see more of them. Who, who were they? Like what possibly could have animated them in their quest? And what interested you about his failure to be recognized by the communist leaders in his mm. area? I mean, I think it, it speaks to the gap between, of course, um, ambition and, and reality, um, which is particular to, to Cao Cao, but also something just that people experience more broadly in China and more broadly, I think, in our, in our, our lives in general, just the, the gap between how we see ourselves and how others see us. For Tato, that that's something that is that comes out of like a really particular political context, but um, but I think it's something that we we all can relate to is just who we are and and yeah whether we feel like the world understands us and 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 recognizes and sees us as, as such. I think especially for for Tato, there's there's a, a, a poignancy there for for him as he's an older man and he's seen the country go through such extraordinary change and the young people in this village, you know, the the village being emptied out and he's filled with a sense of pride at these changes and with the party and what it's accomplished, but also is, is a human and, and wants, is aware of his own presence or lack thereof on that um, stage and, and wants that sense of, of recognition too, which he sees around him, but, but 
um, has never has never been his share. I felt so bad for him. I just wanted him to be recognized by the leader so bad. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I that's you know we, we spoke earlier about feeling that's in a marriage when you know and how that character um, plays out after she leaves China. And for me, I, I, I don't. I truthfully don't know. I mean, with, but what's how? So I feel like I do know. I feel like that moment. You know, so the the plane ultimately does not fly the way he wants it to. But there's that that exchange, right, with the young woman who's come back from the town, who's one of those youth who, um, in some ways, is a symbol of the new China, right? Who um, comes back with um, her purple hair and takes a ride in in Cao Cao's failed plane. And shares with him. It's just, it's like a tiny little moment, but you see that she, she displays such scorn for the village party secretary. And in that moment, just she hands tells all something. Like, I think it's a moment that's going to, we do at the end of the story, see him ruminating on it and, and thinking of it and makes him smile. Like just, he sees that this young person who is so much a part of, you know, the way that the village has developed and um, a symbol of success and, and moving forward and, and out of the village and modernity in so many ways. He sees that she can laugh at this man, you know, this man who has such power of his, his psyche and whose respect he so badly wants to earn. And he sees that to her, she can sort of thumb her nose at him. And I think that does change his perception. And I think that's why that story ends on a moment to me of uplift when he he says okay well i'm still going to try i still want to make this thing fly but it's for me it's it's something i'm doing for myself so there is a another story that's a little bit more magical called new fruit yeah and in this story there is a farmer who is lives in the country and he develops, he's grafting different fruits and he develops mm-hmm. a new fruit that gets the name in, in Chinese called peculiar fruit. Mm-hmm. And when this fruit first comes to this town, it doesn't go to the grocery stores. It goes to the peddlers and the people at the markets. And word gets around quickly that not only is this like the most delicious succulent fruit, but it sort of makes you feel warm inside. It makes feels of contentment. You feel love and whole and happiness. It's like it has this magical power and it is um, it spreads like wildfire. The news of this fruit, the taste of this fruit and everybody in the village is like so much happier. It's like almost like they put like LSD in the water or something. <laughs> um, but then as it becomes more of a commodity and no longer is available at the small farmers markets, but is distributed through the supermarkets, it changes. There's more remorse and shame when you eat it. It doesn't make you feel good anymore. What was the genesis of this story for you? Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you asked. I I loved getting to write that story and I love it so much because it spoke so closely to the neighborhood that I was living in in Beijing at the time. Um, One of what... um, you know, you call, um, they're called in Beijing, like a, like a hutong, which is, um, one of the old traditional, um, sort of neighborhoods in Beijing, very much like these, these old, um, narrow alleys that are sort of the traditional fabric of the city, like the the heart of sort of old Beijing where, um, peddlers come in from the countryside and, um, retirees like to sit around and gossip and, um, 
there are these, so just down the street from my apartment, there was one such street where um, peddlers would come in um, with fruits and vegetables um, from the countryside and reliably every summer, the most intoxicatingly magical nectarines. And I, I mean, they of course did not have the actual properties of the nectarines described in new fruit, but they were just, they were the most luscious fruit possible, deep orange, like addicting. I would eat bags of them and everyone else did too. And I, I just like, I loved, I loved them. And I, I wanted to put the neighborhood into a story. They, it was such a, a tremendous part of what I loved about Beijing, this kind of community. Um, you know, weekends, I, I love nothing more than to get to wander through some of these uh, stalls and, and just get to people watch and eavesdrop on, on folk. And um, looking around, you know, you would, you would see these retirees and these faces and, you know, and know that they, these were people who had, had witnessed such periods of history and such tragedies, whether it was the Cultural Revolution or, or Tiananmen. And um, I, I felt myself, you know, just navigating that kind of, of scene, you're conscious of kind of the, the, the warmth of that community and also conscious of some of that history that's, that's just like within very recent memory for so many of these people. And so, you know, I, I wanted to write a story that would, that would be a tribute in some ways to the neighborhood and, and the community and um, some of the people that I met and loved there, but also, um, you know, upended the scene a little bit. And, and um, so, so I thought to myself, well, what would happen if people, if, if a magical fruit arrived and suddenly started to make people remember all the things that they wanted to forget. And yeah, that, so that was very much the origin of the story was something that, that was very real to me in my own life. Um, but again, trying to, to tweak it a little bit and to find possibilities and, and play and just, that's that's how the story evolved. Um, I don't know what it, what it was about those fruit. My um, my beer chief would always say, you know, that they just inject those fruits with sugar, um, sugar water, before they sell it. And maybe that was the case because they, they certainly were addicting and incredibly delicious, if not not quite so magical as they are in the story. Did you feel sometimes a sense of that magic when you were living there? Yeah, yeah. I think um, certainly of a sense of the surreal. Um, China is such an over the top place and on every level, like the news, the, um, the kinds of change that you see happening, but also just like on a sensory level, I feel like, um, yeah, there's just so much that I wanted to try and capture in these short stories, um, and share about the place, just the vividness of it, the, the richness of that, experience, which at times can veer very much into this real, almost like magical realism. Um, you know, it's a, it's a place where the government literally seeds the clouds and decides when it's going to rain in the case of um, Beijing, you know, which is a story, it's just a, it's a, a detail that would be ripped straight from like a science fiction novel. Um, it's, it's a place where for a time when I was living in Beijing, there was one fashion trend, which was to wear these fake green plants upon your head. And it was the most surreal, delightful thing. You would, um, sometimes in particularly crowded streets, there was one not far from our home, um, you know, walking through the crowd and seeing these, these plants affixed to people's heads. You could almost pretend or trick yourself into thinking that you were standing there in the middle of a moving green field and I loved, I love that side of, of life, just the sense of living 
on the edge of possibilities, which I, I think seeps into to a lot of these stories. And I think it's something you see like with, with New Fruit, certainly. Um, and I think also just inflects some of the spirit of, of these stories. I always wonder how trends like that start. Like, who was the first person that decided to wear a plant? Oh, my gosh. Right? I think, I mean, I will say, like, I feel like China is a place where trends just would catch on like wildfire. I mean, all it would have taken was just like one one guy. And I feel like it invariably would probably just be like one street vendor who starts selling it. And suddenly, as soon as one person's doing it, like, everyone's doing it. Um, yeah, things like that would catch on and just become crazes. And it was, I don't know if, like... I don't think it was something that would have taken as quick of a hold in, say, the States. Um, but I found that trends there, they get so amplified, too, in some ways, by state media and um, and social media there. It's, it's a more, I feel like it's a more, I mean, it's certainly a much more closed media ecosystem. And so some there's almost like a feedback loop effect, I think, that does come. Um, but, wow, yeah, that... That is something that I think is, is very true in China that you, that you would see is just these, these trends come, take incredibly quick route, um, and then go and, um, yeah, and amplified in some cases by by um, state media, which, you know, as you see in the book, of course, plays like a really strong kind of propaganda role um, and has a, a very clear political message that comes across. But also, you know, on the lighter side of things does just amplify a lot of existing cultural trends um, and and. Yeah, that, that was something I enjoyed in the writing of a lot of these stories. You, you do see um, state media make an appearance in a number of the stories, and it was fun, it was fun for me to do um, in a way that sort of pokes fun at um, some of the coverage, um, like in Gobeco Spirit when the reporters come and, and start to celebrate these these poor, stuck commuters as sort of heroes and, and other places in the book too. But um, yeah, yeah, it, it, how, how it initially got started... It's, it's a good question. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I think it's interesting too, where, you know, in some of your stories, you're you're kind of pointing out it goes both ways. Right. In, in the, it down when they're stuck in Kabuko spirit, they they follow. They're, they're a bunch mm. of followers generally. Mm-hmm. But then you have someone like Lulu who is going against the grain and you have you have a story called Hotline Girl, which is mm-hmm. about a young woman who works in like a government satisfaction office and people call and she tries to answer their 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 questions and needs. And she has a lot of scripts and she starts getting phone calls from an old abusive boyfriend who's kind of hunting her down. And at one one point during that story. And it isn't like incredibly relevant to the story at hand, but there's, you have a line in there that says, um, doesn't it matter that you are one of a billion plus it doesn't matter. You are one of us. And it's an Mm -hmm. ad, it's an ad and that she overhears. And I mean, it does matter to all of the stories because that question of you are just one in a billion. So when you're like, going around and you're wearing a green plant on your head, you're less of an individual when you're a dissenter, you're more Mm. of an individual. So Mm -hmm. I was, I was really curious about that line. I think Hotline Girl, when that story to me is, it's about one individual who in some ways as a character, she is very much wedded to her sense of individuality in as much as like, you know, she was, she wanted to be a singer Right. And we learn from her ex-boyfriend who sort of taunts her at the end. But she had these visions of becoming somebody 
extraordinary, right? And and of course, that's the sort of mundane hope of us all, especially when um, we're in high school, you know, when, when she had those ambitions to, to be somebody, to be on stage, um, in her case, to write something beautiful, to sing. And in the end, she ends up um, winnowing down the scale of her ambitions and also, I think, finding solace in being part of that broader fabric and broader crowd of, of not standing up in many ways because that's how that's what enables her to survive. She comes to Beijing. She comes to the big city. She gives up her mission of singing, but she finds success in another way, namely in being part of that the crowd and specifically, in her case, part of the government bureaucracy. And for her, like what I wanted to try and, and capture in some ways in that story is this the sense of of how she and and other people like her charged with managing the contentment of the city uh, or um you know as it as it figures in the story a government satisfaction office which is a real thing by the way like these satisfaction hotlines which i just thought was so fascinating um but yeah and and at the same time like so you know she she's surrendered some of these um bigger ambitions for herself but she's found a sense of ambition and identity in this larger fabric um where she feels um, like she has that sense of belonging and success and security, um, only only briefly interrupted by this arrival of her ex boyfriend. And at the same time, with the re- with the reader, what I what I really wanted to come across too is at the end. It's a it's a small moment, um, but it's a moment that sort of peels back. I think um, some of the layers of what's happening. Like, and you see behind the curtain, you know, with her colleague. Um, who works early in the story, we, we hear that she works in transport, which sounds like such a mundane, um, uninteresting, neutral thing. And at the end, what you see is that she, um, her sort of part-time gig, in addition to the work at the government satisfaction office, is rounding up these protesters, basically these troublemakers, um, these petitioners. Again, very much something that is true in, in Beijing life as well, that you have these, you have kind of the broader charisma of the city, if you will, with all of its glamour and the sense of being a really prosperous place. And and just beyond that, like one layer, um, you have this this whole world of people who are trying to make themselves heard or being caught up and swept away. And you see that the the main character is is very much she knows that. She she sees it and she walks right by and she goes home congratulating herself um, you know, essentially for being young and being free um, in this this city where she's made it. Though, of course, you know, I, I think the question that lingers for the reader is, what, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that she's free in this sense? Um, and what is what is her, what is the success that she's she's achieved? What What is it really? It must be so overwhelming to feel like you're one in a billion plus. I think for some, like some characters in the book, there's also a sense of comfort that comes with that sense of, belong to something so much bigger than yourself. And it's the same sense of comfort, I think, that many of us here in the States can take from a sense of larger identity and, and knowing that we are part of the USA, capital U, capital, capital A. And I think, yeah, I, I think it's a mixture of things. Um, but I, I think for some for some people, it's a taunt. It's And for some people, it's a source of comfort. I mean, I think in some ways it's a challenge because no one is just one in a billion. Like no one mm-hmm. is generic. Like it's mm-hmm. it's exactly. it's absolutely impossible. Like other people might make you feel that way, but that mm-hmm. is 
absolutely impossible. Everyone is unique. You know, mm-hmm. your own breathing, the own way you walk, like on the most basic level is uniquely your creative act. Absolutely. And I think that's something that in some way the title is intended to poke a little bit of fun at this idea that like, you know, the land of big numbers, it's, it's a place that's so gargantuan. And this idea that it's, it's, you know, 1.3 billion people. I mean, it's, I, it is that I suppose, but it is, you really, it's, it's a collection of people, places that are much more granular in particular and extremely diverse. And so, yeah, to think of yourself as being part of a billion people, it's, it's just, it's abstracted and it's a fiction in, in so many ways, sometimes a political one. Um, and at the end of the day, I mean, we really, we, we really are individuals just trying to, to make it for ourselves and, and create our sense of ourselves in the world. So the, the story, The Land of Big Numbers, is about um, two young men, um, Zhu, Zhu Feng and Li. And Zhu Feng is, he wants to get ahead. He sees that his family ha- does not get ahead. They're sort of happy with how things are. They're, they're poor, but not like destitute. Um, and he starts um, playing the stop stock market basically mm-hmm. he um and he's convinced that that he cannot lose because the government is going to shore it up if 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 losses start happening in big amounts he's convinced that he won't lose money so he's kind of stealing a little bit from his employer but he's putting it back before the month is over so it'll all reconcile and he mm-hmm. starts doing really well and then he's not doing really well. The genesis of that story, I was sitting, um, I was in Guizhou and I was sitting in like a little restaurant and I overheard these two men talking about a case very much like that main character of someone who was embezzling money from the government and investing in the stock market, but he put it back and so it was no big deal. Um, and I just, um, that stuck in my mind and I just thought it was, it, yeah, that, that was where the story grew out of. And so, um, yeah, I think the story's about it's about, of course, the tremendous risks that this young man is taking and how it um, dovetails with this sort of sense of ego and desire to become a man and um, to prove that he's, um, you know, can make it like his friend Lee, who he envies, who he grew up with and envies so much and wants to imitate his swagger and his success in the world material um, and otherwise. And a lot of the stories about that. To me, what sort of the emotional core of the story is, is more about the family though and about his relationship with his parents um sort of the smaller stage in which his father is someone part of kind of this whole older um the older part of Chinese society and um that he disparages and and thinks is has you know they they've been left behind and he's so much part of the the new wave and that sense of that feeling of heartbreak for me was really in, in writing those scenes between him and his father. And, you know, he'd grown up admiring this man who had driven his motorcycle and, um, and at the end of his life, or at least in, in quite right middle age, he sees him as so much reduced and so weakened. And I think there's, um, and of, of course too, that, that emotional arc and journey from coincides with, with that, growing sense of uh, disbelief that the government would ever let him down, that the government would ever let the market drop. Um, and that, yeah, and that that's layered over his own emotional journey and sense of his father 
also having been so reduced and made so human in his eyes and disappointing. And I think, yeah, both of those things are happening in the story. But for me, it was that that sense of um, personal love and loss and disappointment um, and just change in the relationship between father and son as the, as the son is, is getting older and, and trying to, um, yeah, establish himself, sort of create his own footprint in the world. That, to me, at least in writing the story, was what really was what spoke to me. And his dad, was it Tiananmen Square that his dad was in? Yeah, so not actually Tiananmen um, because he wasn't in Beijing, but there were many protests that happened outside of um, Beijing also in that time period. And so, yes, his father was involved in one of them. I thought there was so much irony, too, in that he was sort of judging his dad for maybe sort of like being a has-been. And his dad Mm -hmm. was shot, you know, fighting for government reform and for freedom. And then here's the son essentially hoping that the government will save him because that the mm-hmm. government will shore up the stock market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that he prides himself like he's taking all these tremendous risks. Right. And he's bold in that way, like his friendly and um, his father wouldn't understand like this thing called money, this thing called the stock market. And yet, of course, his, his father is somebody who has taken tremendous risk in his own life and, and, and more risk beside um, than, than his son. Um, yeah. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. So this is from Travis B., which is a story by Maylee Malloy, and it goes like this. Chet Moran grew up in Logan, Montana, at a time when kids weren't supposed to get polio anymore. In Logan, they still did, and he had it before he was two. He recovered, but his right hip never fit in the socket, and his mother always thought he would die young. When he was 14, he started riding spoiled and unbroke horses to prove to her that he was invincible. He buck- they bucked and kicked and piled up on him again and again. He developed a theory that horses didn't kick or shy because they were wild. They kicked and shy because for millions of years they'd had the instinct to move fast or be lion meat. You mean because they're wild, his father had said when Chet advanced this theory. He couldn't explain, but he thought his father was wrong. He thought there was a difference, and that what people meant when they called the thing wild was not what he saw on the green horses at all. He was small and wiry, but his hip had made it hard for him to scramble out from under the horses, and he broke his right kneecap, his right foot, and his left femur before he was 18. His father drove him to the Great Falls, where the doctors put a steel rod in his good leg from hip to knee. From then on, he walked as though he was turning into himself to ask a question. So tell me why you chose that. I love this story so much. Um... Yeah, I, I just, I love, but I love Malloy's stories. She just writes with this incredible transparentness and clarity. Her eye for detail just, like, reads me almost like a journalist's eye for for storytelling. Like, there's, you feel like when you're reading her writing that you're just looking through, like, a pane of glass at this character and that last moment. From then on, he walked as though he were turning to himself to ask a question. I love that. Just the way that she is helping you visualize this character. It's so evocative. And the writing is so clean. And, um, yeah, just it takes you in so... This is is how the story begins. And it takes you in so readily to who this character is with such economy. And it just seems like a really difficult task that she navigate so beautifully you know also getting into this character's mind you learn something about his mind you learn something about his relationship with his father and 
and his history and all of that just in, in four short, um, beautiful paragraphs. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is from Shanghai Murmur, and it goes like this. This is the start of the story. The man who lived upstairs had died and had taken the other tenants days to notice, days in which the sweetly putrid scent thickened and residents tried to avoid his part of the hall, palms tenting the noses as they came and left. At last, someone sent for the building manager, who summoned his unemployed cousin to break the lock and paid him 100 yen to carry the body down the three flights of stairs. There was a squabble as the residents who inhabited the adjoining rooms argued that they should have their rent lowered. The death was bad luck. Xiaolei stood listening as the building manager shouted them down. He felt sorry for the man who died, whom she recalled as middle-aged, with tired, deep-set eyes, a chain smoker who'd worked at the local post office. She supposed that if she was ever asphyxiated or was stabbed overnight, the same thing would happen to her. That evening, she brought back a white chrysanthemum and went upstairs in the dark, intending to leave it outside his room. As she carefully mounted the steps, though, she saw that the door stood open. The room was windowless, with a blackness even denser than that of the hall. She didn't wait for her eyes to adjust. She pitched the flower into the void, barely breathing, and ran back down the stairs. So that's how the story opens, and it's very different from how it was originally written. Um, this story first was inspired by a building not far from me in Beijing, a Republican-era structure that was beautiful and um, had a very abandoned look to it. Um, and it was just so striking to me to see this this, this structure, which um, it's a kind of architecture that's very hard to find in China these days, at least still intact, sort of a blend of Eastern and Western architectural styles. And I used to walk by and I would see these lines of laundry hanging out of the windows. Um, the whole structure was clearly inhabited um, by people in a way that um, felt very humble, almost like the building had a nearly slovenly sort of tenement feel to it. And that contrast struck me and I, I kept imagining uh, a character who lived in that building and, and um, was very conscious of its beauty, but also was dealing so much with um, just the drudgery and friction that comes from being um, poor and struggling in a big city. And so I, I wrote, um, I really luxuriated in getting to write about this building, which was a place that, um, yeah, I just found so evocative and visually striking. And I wrote quite a lot about the character in the building at the start and um, some interactions uh, between residents. And then in the end, I had to strip it all out, which um, was fine. I mean, it, it actually really was, was, I really, for me, I think the joy was in getting to write it and I, I wasn't too sorry to cut it. Um, but but I, I think um, that process is, is a lot of what um, the short story writing process was for me in, in, in this book was, was writing through you know, taking, as we, we talked about before, sort of taking maybe a moment um, or a stray idea or, or fancy and then pursuing it and then writing the story and then realizing that actually maybe the kernel that uh, first inspired really wasn't what the story was about and, and stripping that away and, and going through the story and figuring out where the start of the story really was. And for Shanghai Murmur, it was really with that moment um, and, and with uh, the detail about that man's death. Where do you write? I write 
sometimes on my couch um, and principally in bed and um, often, I'd say most of the time with a blanket over my head, um, which is a very, I'm sure, like when my husband walks in the room, that it's a really ludicrous sight. Um, but there's something about that feeling of coziness and intimacy and just being able to close off the rest of the world that, um, yeah, that I, that I always turn to when writing. I think it also is in some ways maybe an artifact of how I first began to write. Um, I wrote my first novel, um, which, you know, was never published or anything. Um, sort of my first experiment in writing a novel was, um, when I was living in Chengdu, um, in China, this was, um, after I'd graduated and I was there on a fellowship, I was living in this, um, dormitory, student dormitory that had really poor heating and Chengdu, although, um, it can have a really, um, warm climate in certain parts, certain times of the year, um, I was there for part of the winter when it was just it was just so cold and also deeply damp and humid, which just accentuated that feeling of um, being totally freezing in this like uh, really flimsily built student dormitory. And so I would write with a blanket over my head just sort of out of necessity. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I've I've kept with that habit. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I go out on walks. I go out on walks um, with my son and my husband. And um, that, that's the best. That's what I, in many ways, I'm writing. And I write in the morning, so I feel like I can go out with good conscience. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show it to my husband, um, who's an amazing writer in his own right, and just a fantastic reader and smart and kind, and also knows how to talk to me in a way that he can give me um, constructive feedback and also doesn't make me want to throw myself off a cliff. How have you dealt with rejection? I try and let it be a goad in some ways, just a spur to do better. I also try and remind myself that there's so many books out there that people and critics swoon over who that I've read and I just really have felt nothing for. And I try and use that to remind myself that taste is so, so individual. And what is your favorite word? Oh, I don't have one. I wish I did. I can say that at least, I mean, I, yeah, I've, I, I, I've kept like, um, a list of, of words in my Gmail just that, um, are exciting to me for whatever reason. And I feel like at least at this particular moment, especially in the pandemic, when so many of us have been sheltering in place, the words that I am most drawn to right now are the ones that are evocative of sensory experiences. So um, like crisp or mellifluous words that, yeah, just really conjure up like an almost tactile sense. Um, Because I think right now that is just something that so many of us crave is this feeling of just being out in the world and having um, a richer stimuli. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing your thoughts about your book. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's, it's so fun. And it's so kind of you to have me on the podcast. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Taping Chen, author of the novel Land of Big Numbers. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Suvankam Kamavangza 
whose short story collection, How to Pronounce Knife, features stories of immigrants and refugees exploring dislocation, isolation, and the inherent clashes between their traditional cultures and the new societies they live in. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with George Saunders, Anna North, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, and Alan Lightman. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay safe and healthy. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rabkin. Thank you for listening.